recently 60 Minutes featured the Bernie Madoff family. Mrs. Madoff talked about all of the phone calls they had received and the hate mail they had received, and probably many of us would say we certainly understand that. The son said that he would never speak to his father again, nor would he forgive him. And the daughter-in-law said that if she saw him again, she would spit in his face. Bernie Madoff said he was happier in prison, but he was grieved about his family's hatred towards him. We are all familiar with hatred. We read about it every day. We see it on the news every night. And I suppose the reason that as I watched that program, it especially impacted me is because I had just read the words of Jesus when he said, love your enemies. Love your enemy. I'm supposed to love someone who has deliberately ripped me off and taken advantage of me. I'm supposed to love someone who has abused me. I am supposed to love someone who is despicably vile. Love your enemies. There was one man who read that passage of Scripture and concluded, either those are not the words of Christ or we are not Christians. Take your Bibles, please. Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, beginning in verse number 43. We continue today our study from the Sermon on the Mount, and we pick up where we left off. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brother only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now as we've looked at this sermon series... There is a pattern that has developed as Jesus deals with the law. Moses gave a law. The Pharisees then interpreted the law. And then Jesus corrected their interpretation. Now, as we look at the passage of Scripture today, what we see is the misinterpretation of the Pharisees there in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, we are familiar with that part that says that you are to love your neighbor. But where did the hate your enemy come from? Well, it didn't come from Moses. Instead, it came from the misinterpretation of the Pharisees. And I think there were a couple of reasons for that. First of all, the Pharisees had a faulty definition for neighbor. And primarily their definition was a definition of exclusion. It was not who was included, but who was excluded as a neighbor. Gentiles were excluded. Certainly it was not expected that a Gentile was to be considered as my neighbor. 
It also excluded the the uh, publicans because they, they were said to be fuel for the fires of hell. They were the ones who collected taxes for the Roman government. Did not include them. Did not include the Samaritans. In fact, the Jews so hated the Samaritans that when they were on a journey and they came to the land of Samaria, they would detour around it so as not to work, walk on that unholy sod, even though it added miles to their journey. Yesterday I was reading in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 21, which says, He who despises his neighbor sins. Well, it didn't apply here because these were not their neighbors. The Gentiles were not the neighbors. The Samaritans were not the neighbors. The publicans were not their neighbors. In fact, in their definition, only another Jew was considered to be their neighbor. Thayer wrote, a neighbor was a member of the Hebrew race and commonwealth. So when they defined who is my neighbor, it was another Jew. But don't we do the same thing? I mean, oftentimes, don't we do the same thing? I'm to love my neighbor, but who is my neighbor? Well, if I'm a gamecock, certainly it's another gamecock. Wouldn't be a Clemson tiger. Or if I'm a Clemson tiger, would not be a gamecock. Or if I'm a Republican, would not be a Democrat. If I'm a Democrat, would not be a Republican. If I'm a Baptist, wouldn't be a Methodist. So see, we have the tendency to do the same thing. When we are defining who is my neighbor, we have a tendency to do so in exclusive terms. So they had a faulty definition of neighbor. And then secondly, they misinterpreted Scripture. Granted, there are some Scriptures that would seem to teach this that I am to love my neighbor and hate my enemy. You can find those scriptures in the Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 17. Listen to this. You shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. So concerning the Canaanites here, uh, God says that you are to destroy them. There's another passage of Scripture, 1 Samuel 15, 18. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. So in that passage of Scripture, it says that the Amalekites are to be exterminated. And then all of our enemies, they are to be blotted out of the book of life. In Psalm 69, 23, may their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. May they be blotted out of the book of life. So you see how they reach this interpretation. But then how, how do we explain such harshness in the Scripture? How do we explain those verses? Is that what it's teaching, that we are to love our neighbor and we are to hate our enemy? Is, is that what it's teaching us? No, you have to understand these verses in this light. They were judicial in nature. They were never directed to individuals. That's always true. Concerning these verses, they are judicial in nature, not directed to individuals. And in fact, as we read the Bible, the Scripture tells us that God desires mercy. The Scripture says in Exodus 33:11, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now, that's what God says. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I take no pleasure in the suffering of people. 
And Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Folks, do you want to know the heart of God concerning you? The Lord has told us very plainly, it is not my desire that any should perish. I hear people sometimes say, well, you know, God sends people to hell. No, that is not the heart of God. He has plainly told us that it is not my desire that any perish, but that all come to repentance. But even though He is merciful and loving and kind and all those things... The Bible also tells us that God is holy, and because He is holy, He is just. And so the Scripture says in Exodus 34, 7, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. All right, so how do we reconcile that? On one hand over here, when we talk about God, God has told us, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He said, it's not my desire that any perish, but that all come to repentance. So over here, he tells us about his love, his mercy, his kindness, his grace. But then over on this hand, he says, but I am holy. And because I am holy, I am also just. So how do we reconcile that? How do, how do we reconcile those two things? Well, the Scripture says in 1 John 4.10, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Folks, that's the reason that the coming of Jesus and the death of Jesus is so significant. Because what happened is that God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He satisfied the debt that you and I owe. When He died on the cross... He paid for my sins. He took my sins and your sins upon Himself, and He satisfied the debt. And W. E. Vine wrote, By the giving up of His sinless life sacrificially, Christ annuls the power of sin to separate between God and the believer. So what you have here as we look at this passage of Scripture, first of all, again, is the Pharisees' misinterpretation. Love your neighbor and hate your enemies, that was a misinterpretation. And they misinterpreted it because they had a faulty definition of neighbor and misunderstood the teachings of Scripture. But then secondly, we come to Jesus' instructions. Verse number 43, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What I want you to see here as Jesus is dealing with this, that he begins now to focus the attention on love, and he teaches us to love. And he teaches us, first of all, to love from negative situations. When our circumstances are negative, when our situation is negative, he says that we are to love. For instance, he says when we are insulted, we are not to retaliate. Verse number 39, I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, when we looked at that passage of Scripture, you recall I said that to slap someone on the right cheek and you're standing in front of them, you have to backhand them. And the rabbis said that was twice as offensive as slapping someone with the flat of the hand. So it's dealing with insults. 
When I am insulted, I am not to retaliate. That's a tough one for Southerners, isn't it? I mean, for all people, but especially Southerners. One of the uh, Gladwell books that I read, I can't recall which one it was, but it told the story about um, an experiment that had been done, and there was a very narrow hallway, and they had equally divided between Southerners and people from up north. And there was a big burly guy that was going to walk down that hallway, and then they sent someone down to see how close they would get before they moved. And so the big burly guy is coming down the hallway, and they would send someone from up north, and several feet before they got together, he moved to the side and let the guy pass. When it was a southerner, he would get up within a foot of that guy before he would move, because we just don't like someone to press us. We, there's a matter of honor that is going on here. There's a matter of pride that is going on. And we don't like for someone to insult us and think they can get away with it. And yet when I read that, he says that the Christian is not to retaliate when insulted. I don't particularly like this either. When we are sued, we are to give. Verse number 40. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Now, Jesus didn't mention if it were justified or not. And I wonder, did, he, did Jesus know how litigious our society would become? I mean, we sue about everything. You bring, if I don't like the way you, you, I don't know what your hair looks like, I'd sue you. I mean, we sue about everything today. But Jesus said, when you're taken advantage of, respond in love, that we give more than is required in verse number 41. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. I said to you that the Roman soldier was legally allowed to require the Jew to carry his pack for a mile. The Jews resented that, of course. But Jesus said, when they require of you that you carry their pack for a mile, you carry it too. So what Jesus does here is he's teaching us about love, and he teaches us to love from negative circumstances. But then he teaches us to love from positive circumstances also. Verse number 44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Barclay defined love. He said, Greek is a language which is rich in synonyms. Its words often have shades of meaning which English does not possess. In Greek, there are four different words for love. Now, see, we love everything. Here in, in our language, in English, we love everything. I love that red thing you're wearing. Yeah. I mean, I love pizza. We just had a bunch of turkey. Yeah, I love turkey. I love this car, and I, I love the building. I love it. We love everything. We use the same word. But in the Greek language, there are four different words. There's the word storge, which speaks of family love, the kind of love that one has for family. There is eros, from which we get the word erotic, which speaks of passion. Barclay said in these words, there is nothing essentially bad. They simply describe the passion of human love. But as time went on, they began to be tinged with the idea of lust rather than love, and they never occur in the New Testament at all. But that is one of the Greek words, eros. Then there's the word philia. Barclay says this describes a man's closest and nearest and truest friends. So philia love is the kind of love that you have for a friend. And then there's the word agape. 
Barclay wrote, if we regard a person with agape, it means that no matter what that person does to us, no matter how he treats us, no matter if he insults us or injures us or grieves us, we will never allow any bitterness against him to invade our hearts, but will regard him with that unconquerable benevolence and goodwill which will seek nothing but his highest good. That's agape. It's different from philia. The love that you have for a friend, that is sort of natural. We have something in common, or I like this person, or I enjoy spending time with this person, and so this person is my friend. That is a natural thing. It's philia. Different from agape. To love your friend is different from loving an enemy. If you love an enemy, it's because you choose to, not because it's natural, not because you're attracted to that person, not because you have things in common with that person. You love the person because you choose to. It is a matter of will, and it is exclusively Christian. Do you see that? I'm to love my enemy. Oh, I can't do that. I don't like that person. That's fine. You don't have to like that person. It means that you choose to love that person. It is a matter of the will. It's proactive, not reactive. In verse number 45b, he says, For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God sends the sun and the rain on both the righteous and also the unrighteous. What he is trying to teach us here is that God's love for you is not contingent upon your worthiness of his love. That's the message in that verse. God's love for you and for me is not contingent upon me deserving his love, which is what it says in Romans 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. So he is telling us here that we are to love like God. We give kindness for bitterness. Verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. We are to be benevolent to those who are spiteful to us. In Luke 6:27, do good to them that hate you. We are to pray for those who persecute us. That's what Jesus did. When they nailed him to the cross, Jesus prayed for them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When they stoned Stephen to death, Stephen prayed for them. Father, forgive them. So we see Jesus' instruction here. So we see the misinterpretation of the Pharisees. And then Jesus speaks to us about love as he instructs us. And then thirdly, there's the Christian's ambition, verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brother only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now, now folks, here's what he is saying is that as Christians, you have a high standard that has been given to you. No one has a higher standard of life than does a Christian. Now, we are unique in character, meaning that we are not like the non-Christian. You see, the Christian goes the second mile, not just the required one. The, the, the Christian gives when abused. Why? Because we are supposed to be like 
God, not like the world. That's the expectation. As those who name the name of Jesus, we are supposed to be like God, not like the world. Well, how is God? God is holy. The Scripture says in Leviticus 19.2, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So the Bible says that God is holy. You and I are supposed to be holy, which means to be set apart. We have been set apart from the world, and we have been set apart to God. God is holy. And then God is loving. The Scripture says in 1 John 4.16, God is love. Folks, as surely as birds fly and fish swim, Christians love. It is just as normal, it is just as natural as it is for a bird to fly or a fish to swim that a Christian loves. Now, I'm not saying that all Baptists love. I'm not saying that any denomination necessarily, but I am saying that Christians love. That is the nature of a Christian. God is loving. We are to be loving. God is faithful. The Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful, which means dependable. Therefore, as Christians, we are to be faithful. We are to be faithful to our family. We're to be faithful to our responsibilities. We are to be faithful to our church. We're to be faithful to our obligations. We are faithful. Why? Because God is faithful. And then the Bible says that God is long-suffering. Peter wrote, the Lord is long-suffering to us. Bynes wrote, long-suffering is that quality of self-restraint in the face of provocation which does not hastily retaliate or promptly punish. It is the opposite of anger and is associated with mercy. Now, because we are unique in character, we are also unique in attitude. Our character affects our attitude. So our attitude then is different as believers. First of all, our attitude towards the law. The natural man observes the law, but does not go beyond the letter of the law. The spiritual man is committed to the spirit of the law, not just the letter. I can, I can illustrate that for you this way. When, when I first moved here and I was looking for an accountant to do my taxes, I met with him and, and uh, we talked about the expectation and so forth. And I said to him, Woody, I want to be legal in my taxes. In other words, I don't want to pay a dime I don't legally have to pay. Amen? All right. I want to be legal. I said, but beyond that, I want to be ethical. And when there's any question, I want to be ethical. So you see to it that I am legal and that I am ethical. A Christian is not just concerned with the letter of the law, but also the spirit of the law. Our attitude towards morality is different. The natural man focuses on what not to do. The spiritual man focuses on the positive. Why? Because he hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Our attitude towards self is different. The natural man looks at himself and he compares himself to someone else and says, I'm not that bad. You know, if I compare myself to Steve, I'm not that bad. But the spiritual man compares himself to Jesus and understands that he is poor in spirit. His attitude towards God is different. The natural man sees God and is fearful. 
The spiritual man sees God as a father, a father who loves him and is only concerned about his best. Our attitude towards death is different. The natural man sees death as the end. The spiritual man sees death as the entrance. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And then the Christian is to be unique in maturity. Verse 48, Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Barclay wrote, Perfect is a functional word and not a reference to sinlessness. It means maturity. The word was used to refer to a student who had mastered their subject. If a student masters their subject, then they are said to be perfect, mature. If a musician has mastered the music and can play the music, then they are perfect because they have mastered the music. Well, then what does it mean to be perfect or mature as a Christian? It means that you are fulfilling God's purpose for your life. Well, what is God's purpose for your life? Well, generally it is this, that you might be conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, now we all know Romans 8, 28 and quoted every time we get in trouble. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. But the next verse, verse number 29, says that God is using all these things in our life to conform us to the image of Jesus that we might be like Jesus. Now, that is God's general purpose for your life, that you become like Jesus. And that's what He's doing in your life. He's working in your life to make you like Jesus. Well, what is the process that causes us to be like Jesus? Well, it begins with justification. Justification is when I am converted, I invite Christ into my heart to forgive me of my sins, and then I am justified before God. That leads to sanctification. That is the process that goes on in my life as the Lord is pointing out sin in my life and purifying me to make me more like Jesus, and then it ends in glorification, and that's when I go to heaven to be with Jesus. And we don't arrive until then. That's the reason John wrote, when we see Him, we will be like Him. Don't you have a desire to be like Jesus? See, that's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. He gives us this, I want to be like Jesus. I fail, but I want to be like Jesus. That is the process of sanctification that is taking place in my life. But the Bible says, when I see Him, then I'll be like Him. When the Lord comes to take me to glory, then I'm going to be like Him. Let me conclude real quickly. Looking at uh, these verses, how would you describe yourself? Are you like Jesus... Or are you like the world? Are you like Jesus or are you like the world? Let me ask you one other question. Are you a Christian? Or are you just pretending to be? My friend, if you're just pretending to be a child of God, I plead with you and pray for you that today you might give your heart to Christ and indeed become a child of God. 
Our gracious Father and God, as we come for a time of examination, I pray, Father, that you might look into our hearts and reveal to us what you see. And, Father, I pray for those who have never trusted Jesus, that today they might. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir's going to sing a hymn of invitation. An opportunity for you to respond to the Lord. If you're not a Christian, would you come today? Staff will be here to pray for you, encourage you. Just come and tell one of them, I want, to be a, I want to be a Christian, or I'm not sure if I'm a Christian. Just come and tell one of them. If you're looking for a church, all my doors are open to you. We'd love to have you as a member. Stand with me, please. As they sing, you come. I'll greet you as you do. <laughs>